Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with the mystic smile. Is it only cause you're lonely? They have blamed you. Hello and welcome back to Glass Onion Minute. This is episode 130. I know it's hard to believe we've managed to go that far. I am your host, Ollie Brady, filling in for Austin. Uh, he's been um, delayed or, or was unable to take on this week. So he said, I need another Irish person to fill in. And I went, okay, I fill at least half of that criteria. Um, and I'm joined by my guest, as I've had been all week, uh, Alex Gredet. Alex, how are you? Definitely not loudly chewing a tortilla chip into my microphone that's the important part i can understand how you'd think that but well, you know definitely not that's not what's if, happening over here if you are not loudly chewing a tortilla chip then you my friend should be in the reboot of police academy <laughs> because it sounds exactly like somebody who is chewing a tortilla chip into I the stu- mic. i studied under the great uh, michael winslow so i know a thing or two about making noises that i'm not actually making um I, <laughs> I was just about to say we should we should keep this tight, but also now I want to talk about Michael Winslow for a bit. Oh no no, I, I've never I've never I've never met the man. I was just I was just taking the ball and running with it. I know. I just I just really want to talk about Michael Winslow though. <laughs> Who amongst us doesn't? We are talking about uh, Glass Onion, the uh, incredible movie um, that I. If you've been listening to us for the last four episodes and you don't realize that both of us love this movie, then I, there's there's something wrong. But we are talking about the minute that starts at 2 hours and 9 minutes and finishes at 2 hours, 9 minutes and 59 seconds. Um, basically, this is the last full minute, the last proper minute of the movie. And it picks up where our last minute left off, as all good minutes should. And it features the disruptors, or the remaining disruptors, with Helen, or Andy, outside on the steps. And she's just after... Telling Miles Braun, um, the final act is your fuel of the future. Just barbecued the world's most famous painting, dumbass. And she stands up, and she's talking to Miles, and she tells Miles, "Congratulations on the public launch of Clear, and the end of Miles Braun. You're ruined, and you did get your wish." Ever be remembered in the same breath as the Mona Lisa. Past all of the other disruptors and the two additional characters, we have Birdie's um, assistant, Peg, and we also have Whiskey. And she walks past them out into the night, leaving Miles there in front of them. And then Miles goes into damage control and he's like, No. No. Gang, we all saw the same thing. We know what happened. Am I right? And finally, the other disruptors get a little bit of spine into them, seeing how Andy had spoken back to Miles, and um, up goes Birdie's hand, and she goes, I saw the napkin he burned. And then Catherine Hand thinks for a second, and she puts up her hand. Now that you mention it, I clearly saw him grab Duke's gun. And that's the last thing we have, the last line of dialogue, but it's the beginning of the end of Miles Braun, and it's the beginning of the end of the disruptors as a group. 
and I think it's a pretty damn perfect minute. So, how did you find? I nearly called you Miles. I apologize, Alex. How did you <laughs> find this minute? Uh, you know, I'm still hung up on what we discussed in the last minute. I've really been turning it over and over in my head. How much funnier the alligator line is without the inclusion of the deleted scene that would have set it up. Like, it's just, it's been ricocheting that it becomes, in my mind, that it's been, it's like 50% funnier that that's just a word he seemingly pulls out. But as for this minute, as for this minute, I think it's, it's a a really kind of beautiful study in balance and in sticking the landing, um, you know, that this is, uh, that of course, like I was saying in the last minute that, um, that explaining to a child exposition is really just because Miles is not good at putting together the big picture of what's actually happening. Um, yeah. Although I, I think there's something... It's funny because, like, uh, when they first established the recurring motif of Miles wanting his name, wanting something he does to be mentioned in the same breath as the Mona Lisa, which, which, um, when it's first mentioned, Blanc is very cur- like is curious about what that could possibly mean, and Birdie sort of defends it in a very broad sort of, uh, you know, high-minded. Uh, conceptual way but really it's like Miles is so incapable of creativity but so hungry for recognition that this is literally the only way he could do anything that would wind up mentioned in the same breath as the Mona Lisa so it's it's a little bit of a prophecy fulfilled Um, and I like that it lands with that kind of weight because Helen has engineered it that way but then also has to slash gets to explain it to Miles that that's what's just happened. Yeah, and it, as you said before, because she's a primary school teacher, because she is so used to dealing with people maybe not getting the grasp or not grasping what's going on first time, she really does do it tenderly. She really does talk to him like an adult talking to a child. And it's, it's a more fantastic characterization of Helen as opposed to how Andy, because there's no way Andy would have spoken to him like that. She would have had no, anger in her voice and she would have dealt with it. And in well, this case, she's not. And I love how Helen like touches his face, which is such a gentle gesture. Like you almost think that she wants to like, like when she reaches out, there's like a tension in her hand. Like she wants to like either grab him, like 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 just kind of like grab him by the face, or like give him a shove, or or but like it lands with like you said such tenderness that it's like she wants to make sure that her words are really landing. So she's keeping his face focused on hers. Plus, it's almost like. She can feel the anger radiating off of him, and she wants to like she wants to touch it, like she wants to savor this moment in with all five senses. Um, it's it's just beautiful. It's it's really so beautifully done. It, it it's fantastic, and um, one thing that I was really struck by in this scene is after she's finished talking to Miles and she goes walking down the stairs, um we have Jessica Henwick's character, Peg, is staring at her. Like, with, I'm, I'm going to say it's close to adoration, but it's not adoration. She's got a massive smile on her face and it's a genuine admiring glance. 
because she's somebody who's been working with Birdie for a long time now and she's a very good assistant and she's been helping her out but then she sees somebody like Helen who is everything that she probably thought Birdie was when she took on the job and somebody who is self-assured somebody who is willing to stand up for what she believes in and somebody who is because as we know Birdie is involved in a lot of causes but I bet you that Peg is looking at Helen and thinking to herself, she's never going to inadvertently set up a sweatshop. <laughs> and well, it's... Yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, and as she walks past, it's a genuine, oh, yes, that... you. I was going to say, you go, girl, but that seems very reductive. But it was a very much like, oh, wow, this person this person is exactly what I was expecting them to be. Yeah, they they... they set up how Peg feels about Helen, who she thinks is Andy, uh, early on when, um, when Helen as Andy lights into each of the disruptors on the, the sun porch, uh, talking about, um, talking about, uh, I don't know if this is, if this is a violation of the, of the language clause for the podcast, but Miles Braun's golden titties during that, um, (laughs) splendid monologue, uh, and uh but there's this uh, this look on peg's face and what she does is like helen is gesturing around with her bottle of jared leto's hard kombucha and peg just sort of almost like instinctively takes it from her either both as like assisting her like like a here let me hold that for you but also like she's collecting a totem from like a a a, a messianic a hero. figure yeah uh from a hero exactly like it's 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 catching the guitar pick at the rock show for her um and it's you know i've i've encountered a lot of people i've worked in entertainment for a long time and i've encountered a lot of people who are uh just natural born assistants and i don't mean that from any perspective of judgment it's not uh it's not i i don't mean servant when i say assistant what i do mean is that there are people who not everybody has ambitions to do the same things and there are people who um I think the way they put it on 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 the West Wing was there's the guy and the guy the guy depends upon uh <laughs> and both are extraordinary skill sets like they are they are uh completely distinct and completely necessary and Peg is the guy the guy depends upon like like she even rattles off her resume which is Bertie J Bertie J brief retail and Bertie J she's just she's just good at this like she is she is one of these people who is just gonna be uh able to support some like like to work in that support position and keep someone up and running uh and birdie has not been and and for people who are wired that way finding someone to work for and to support whom they are inspired by is like it's like finding a calling and I think Peg is very much like that. And like you say, like, I think Helen, even in the guise of Andy and definitely when she when when the disguises have been dropped, reads to Peg as the person that Peg probably thought Birdie would have been to begin with. I agree with that completely. Um, bad news for Peg is that um Second grade teachers very rarely need a full-time assistant, so I don't know that there's much of a career market there. On the other hand, though, doesn't 
Is it ever, like, is it just implied or is it ever outright said? Does Helen stand to inherit all of Andy's wealth? I imagine she probably is. She'd be like the next she's about, kin, so... Yeah, she's she's about to become at least a several hundred millionaire, if not billionaire, um, overnight. So she'll... You know what? I, I would like to think that um, as much as I don't want future Benoit Blanc mysteries to um, bother delving into what's happened to uh, the characters after their specific entry has ended, um, I, in my headcanon... Uh, yeah, Peg basically assigns herself to Helen, and the two of them are um, just uh, off leading a wonderful life, uh, <laughs> a wonderful professional, uh, interpersonal life together. Um, I, I would be happy if it was just something as simple as a little um, newspaper clipping, or even if you were in Benoit's apartment again with his uh, very beautiful husband or very beautiful boyfriend, and mm-hmm. we just get a picture of them on the wall, the two of them yeah. like signing a deal somewhere. And I, as you said, it doesn't have to take over, but it'd be nice to get that little that little additional thing. Maybe she goes into business with Anna Diarmas's character from the first one and I they was, make a brand was, new thing. I was going to say, Marta's probably got more need of a full-time assistant than Helen. Oh, absolutely. Um, since we're talking about Peg and Jessica Henwick's character, also sitting on the steps with the other disruptors is Whiskey. Um, Whiskey played by Madeline Klein. And we haven't really had a chance to talk about her in this set of five minutes because she's literally just in the background in two of the minutes uh, running out. But um, I just want to just shout out the fact that I think Madeline Klein is phenomenal in this movie. Oh, tremendous. It's one of those characters who's playing a small part which could be truly one-dimensional she could be gold digger she could be the girl who's only there and her entire job is to look pretty to look good in a bikini and then to move from one powerful man to the next powerful man and i think she's taken a character that could have been that and obviously this is a strength in the writing as well and she's taken a character that could have been seen as one-dimensional and with the writing and with her performance she's turned it into a really really good three-dimensional character that has heart that has feeling has her own goals their own driving forces and isn't just another blank piece of pretty uh i was going to say painting on the wall but pretty architecture for the building she's a brilliant young actress i would can't wait to see her more stuff everything i've seen her in i greatly enjoyed and i hope she becomes um a, a bigger movie star than she already is yeah they they do sort of have it both ways with um with uh with whiskey and i i that's taking nothing away from madeline klein's performance or even from the way she's written i think it's that uh i I like how smart and self-aware she appears to be uh for someone who is presented initially as arm candy um i actually really love the idea that um uh, that that Duke, the sort of avatar of of toxic masculinity, uh, <laughs> is like a magnet for women who are stronger and more willful than he is. Because um, it's not often you find uh, an opportunity to compare uh, Madeline Klein and Jackie Hoffman, but they do both. They they are basically the two smartest people in the room at the start of the movie, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, 
Yeah, I think I think Madeline Klein plays her great. I think you don't doubt her intelligence. I think her motivations make sense the whole time. I like that she genuinely cares for Duke, even while seeing the you know she's really heartbroken when when he dies, um, even while understanding the limitations of uh, of what he can do uh, for her professionally. It, I like that she's able to make that separation, that her her valuation of someone isn't just tied up in opportunism, uh, even if she is a bit of an opportunist. I mean, I, it's important to remember all of these people are, to one extent or another, a climber. Just some of them might be slightly better people than the others. Um, <laughs> but I think Madeline Klein does a great job with it, with, with what could potentially be sort of an unenviable role. Uh, and I think she, she finds some really great notes of, uh, of, um, to generate sympathy for her. I think she finds some good madcap moments. Uh, you know, when you, you got to really understand the assignment in a movie that requires you to chase Janelle Monet with a harpoon gun. Um, <laughs> and I, and, and it's just, yeah she's she's more than equal to the task it's really tremendous and since we also really haven't had a chance to chat about her this is the first speaking role that has come up for um birdie at this point played by uh kate hudson i think kate hudson is really really good in this movie and just to, to let people a little peek behind the curtain for this, this is the second time myself and Alex have recorded this particular episode <laughs> due to some audio issues with the fact that my laptop turned off. Uh, we would have been recording for like a minute and an hour and seven minutes or something and my laptop just went, all right, now it's time for an update. And <laughs> don't ask me why it was late in the morning and it just did it. It was heartbreaking to do it. But we had gone into a deep dive on Kate Hudson and we were just talking and I'm going to combine this into two points that we talked about is that Back in 1995, when Quentin Tarantino was producing movies like uh, Pulp Fiction and then Jackie Brown, actors would come to him and they'd be in these movies and it would be like a resurgence for their career and suddenly bringing them back into the spotlight. And it was like you, you'd get their best performances from them in those movies. And you, as we talked about it, we said, Bruce Willis comes back and mm -hmm. suddenly he, he's not on the slide anymore and he went on from doing Pulp Fiction to end up doing to Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and working with Shyamalan. You had John Travolta who was, you could not have got a lower career point than mm. the early 90s for John Travolta and then suddenly he's back on top and he's getting put in movies which have emotional resonance. He, people forget how massive the movie phenomenon was. Michael, as far as I can remember, made a hundred million US domestic. Like he, he was, he, yeah, a huge star. And I mean, and and just for a frame of reference to listeners who may be a little bit younger than you or I, um, when we say John Travolta was at a career low point, <laughs> you have to understand. You have to understand where the highs and lows were for him. Like he, he, um, he, uh. Like, you got to understand what John Travolta, like, 1990, 1994 through, like, 1998, let's say. Like, he was, he was a 20, he was in the $20 million club. Not so much the John Travolta you see now as Disco Santa in a Citibank commercial. <laughs> um, but also it bears mentioning that at 
the point in his career before Pulp Fiction, I don't think he could have booked a Disco Santa Citibank commercial. No. So he's really, I mean, the man has really run the gamut, and we are basically in, by the time you get to the Disco uh, Disco Santa for Citibank, that's basically like, what, fifth wave Travolta at this point? Like, he has been um, a, a really resilient performer, but most of that resilience has come from... Tarantino seeing uh, untapped potential in him uh, and really properly weaponizing him, putting a smoking gun in his hand. And the reason that I brought it up and I'm bringing up the Pulp Fiction is because the Knives Onion... Knives Onion. Hmm. Okay. The uh, Glass Onion and Knives Out uh, movies have brought back characters and actors that haven't had hits or hadn't been performing well, or were in the, the downswing of their career, and they brought them back to, to, to being on form. So they took somebody as, I mean, let's just say, we're, we're talking about Kate Hudson here. Kate Hudson had was Oscar-nominated as early as 2000. She was mm-hmm. Oscar-nominated again, if I remember correctly, sometime in the mid-2000s. She is a fantastic actress, but she got into the habit of playing acting in really bad rom-coms. Then she comes back in this, and she is legitimately funny, she's legitimately charming, and she's putting on a real performance. It doesn't feel like she slept through it. In Knives Out, we talked about uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, and how Jamie Lee Curtis was just showing up as Jamie Lee Curtis. It was like, here, Mm -hmm. who's that in your movie? It's Jamie Lee Curtis, but what's she going to be playing? She's going to be playing Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, Mm -hmm. all right, okay, I kind of get it. But then she does Knives Out, she puts in an incredible performance, and then two years later, she's winning an Oscar for putting in another comedic performance in a dramatic stroke comedic movie. And I think it's a real credit to um, Ryan Johnson, or Ryan Johnson, to be able to bring these actors back to the forefront of people's minds and get them to the point where other established directors or people who want to have a uh, a good performance or a hit from somebody can bring it out of them. And that's the kind of stuff that Quentin Tarantino was doing in 1995, 1996, And people were falling over themselves to praise him and talk about how he was resurging careers. But because Ryan Johnson is the uh, bad guy for certain uh, calls <laughs> of the internet, it doesn't get the same sort of love. But I just want to give a shout out to all of these actors and Don Johnson in... Um, like Nash Bridges himself uh, in Knives Out is also incredible and Dave Bautista now he's a different character situation but I think Dave Bautista gives the best performance he's ever given in this movie to the point where I legitimately think to myself this is a guy who can act I can see this guy winning awards in the future he's like that Dave is ba- how good he is Dave Bautista is I, 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 I don't even think this warrants a mark my words He's going to be the first former, he's going to be the first WWE graduate to get at least a Golden Globe for something, if not an Oscar. Like, I mean, he's he's got the chops. You want to talk about just put a smoking gun in his hand, like, because he's, he, he's got, incre- he's got incredible range. He's got, um, great, uh, he's got great comedic chops. He's got great dramatic chops. It's been, you know, we've spent basically the last decade watching him grow in the job. Um, and that's, al- that's always gratifying to see. Um, 
you know, not just getting more work out of a performer or filmmaker or whoever, but actually watching like, oh, they're learning and they're they're applying new things. Um, you said yourself, Kate, Kate Hudson is not coasting in this like she is she's putting a lot of work into playing a very layered, very nuanced character who happens to be a terrible person. But <laughs> Kate, Kate Hudson knows that. Like, you know, mm -hmm. she's not, she's, she's not, she's not playing herself any, you know, any more than Jamie Lee Curtis was playing an iteration of herself in Knives Out. They are, all of these, all of these characters in the Benoit Blanc universe, they are just like 15 to 20% heightened off axis for regular human beings, pretty much. Like, they're not quite caricatures on par with like, Colonel Mustard, Professor Plum. It's not quite like that, but they're clearly derived from the same general area, which is, we, you know, it, these. one of my favorite things about these movies, uh, I love the um, the sort of woodcut drawings of the of the cast that come up in the end credits. That look, oh, yeah, they're beautiful. The, the, I mean, they're gorgeous. That look like they belong on a clue board. Um, which of course are very ticklish to see because they are they are part and parcel of what we expect of this genre and the part of it that um, you know that that Ryan Johnson is driving at, but it's um, but so you have to come into this as a performer. I'm guessing they have to come into this as who they are and not lose sight of who they are as a grounded human being, but then sort of extend to a little bit of a heightened register from there to just a little bit of caricature you know um and i think i i think everybody who's come out to play for these things has done such an amazing job of it too um i think i think kate hudson is no exception i think katherine hahn look katherine hahn is a ringer like <laughs> put her in coach because come on um i do love by the way you know uh two things about them turning on miles uh, apart from two things besides just the very gratifying fact of them turning on him um they turn on him in um in a sort of uh how to say this oh in, in like descending order of of uh, of how much they have to lose uh which is which is a very interesting and very purposeful thing you know birdie it's very clear, like, like her, her situation, she is in clear and pre she is in clear and present danger. She is, she has to agree to a thing or else, uh, or else she's going to get totally rocked by scandal. Uh, she'll get paid off. It'll all, you know, the sweatshop thing will, will blow over, but she's in like the most immediate danger. So she's the first to turn. And then Claire, who is sacrificing the, the money train funding her, her political career she's next and it's not not to get ahead of of this minute but you know then lionel is next and lionel is just he's put he's voluntarily putting an end to his career at this point um mm -hmm. and but but it's a very satisfying uh like it's an almost like a, like there's something about the there's something very theatrical about that almost musical theater about the symmetry of it of like you know this person's gotta um this person ha goes first this goes second this goes third this is what this person is is claiming 
uh, to bear witness to so on and so forth. Like the 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 organization and of that information and the way it's then uh, ladled out is you don't notice it, but it's it's so organized and so unified that you feel the gratification of it just the same. Um, I love them raising their hands because that's a callback to before all the the decimation of the glass onion where Helen was straight up begging them to uh, to um, lie for the truth, as as she puts it. Uh, and she does it by raising her like because she's a school teacher. She demonstrates raising her hand. So I love that they're all doing that because they are now they are following her example and breaking from following Miles as a leader. And the wonderful karma of that is it's not like they can just detach from Miles and then go attach to Helen because Helen can't stand any of them. <laughs> Helen absolutely hates them. They were all to some extent in or another. Complicit. They were, they, yeah. They were they were complicit in Andy's uh, in 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 uh, Andy's professional uh, humiliation in her uh, ouster from the company uh, that she created. They were complicit enough in covering up her death uh, that it's like that I, I like that they are left rudderless, but that it it still shows that these people are like. That, okay, please, Darren, cut all of this fumfering out because I'm not Jeff Goldblum. Um, but <laughs> uh, it's like, like I was saying before about how Peg is sort of a natural born assistant. Well, these these people are all for being industry leaders in their respective fields. They are all natural born followers. Mm-hmm. And Peg has a better shot of landing on her feet than any of the rest of them. And that, to me, is a part of what makes this a happy ending. Uh, Because Peg seems like an okay person. She's not especially complicit in anything. She has a conscience, a a moral compass uh, that Bertie clearly does not have. And the rest of these guys, they're going to pay for it. They're going to pay for it in ways that don't resemble anything that, like, you or I being ruined... (laughs) would look like because they're still you know wealthy and well-to-do and prosperous uh they're they're gonna fail the way uh well-to-do people fail which is they'll be on the outs for a little while and then they'll come back but it's very gratifying to to watch them all do the right thing but in doing so they are volunteering to lose and that's that's really gratifying to watch yeah it's a fantastic denouement effectively to the movie Mm -hmm. um so we're pretty much come to the end of what we've been discussing. We've come to the end of our five minutes. So, Alex, how would you describe the movie as a whole? Uh, you know, I read a review. I, w- I wish this was. I wish this was my metaphor to use. Instead, I'm going to borrow it, if not outright steal it. But I read a review. Uh, I guess about six or seven years ago, when Logan Lucky came out, a movie that, apart from featuring a southern uh Daniel Craig has no relationship to this movie at all but in the review it was described the movie was described as being the same kind of of delight you get finding 5 bucks in a coat you haven't worn in a while <laughs> um and to me knives out 
and glass onion it's like finding it's like finding two 20s in that same coat that this is this was this kind of moribund genre not that murder and mystery or even who done it have uh, who done it's have faded away they haven't been the province of movies for a while though because i feel like who done it became a very procedural very technical thing with your various law and orders and csis and 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 everything that became that became the province of the who done it uh, of the who done it but those those executions don't have that Agatha Christie death trap uh, vibe to them. Uh, they and as a as a result, they don't have the delight that comes with it. They don't have that that cocktail party romp atmosphere, uh, and they're ju they're just not they're not they're not meant to be fun. They are meant to they're they're. The gratifying version of a whodunit, which is, oh, we don't know who killed this person. Work, work, work. Now we know who killed this person. And you can go back to your to, to staring at your phone. But the idea of a murder <laughs> mystery that really ropes you in and pulls you along step by step and requires you to pay attention to it and rewards you for paying attention to it, that is really something that had not taken this form in a long, long, long time. Uh, and the fact that it's been brought back so, so splendidly, first in Knives Out, and then with Glass Onion coming along and proving Knives Out was not a fluke, uh, if anything, Ryan Johnson was emboldened by the success of Knives Out, um, and, uh, and, and just went even bigger with this one, um, and I'm always kind of fascinated too, just a sidebar here where it's like, you know, you look at, you know, Knives Out. I, I don't know how long the creative process was on Knives Out. However long it was, was just the right amount of time. Uh, when Knives Out arrived, it was so fully realized and so beautifully executed that like the work, the work had been done and it was great. And I don't know if it was an idea that took him two years or five years or ten years, I don't really know what his arc is on these things. But Glass Onion, we know, took him max two year, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, because, not just because of, not just because of it having to follow on the success of Knives Out, uh, and who knows how long some of the smaller ideas w were rattling around in his mind. But the fact that it's set in a pandemic that didn't exist when Knives Out came out, that it hadn't happened yet, hadn't begun yet. Um, so it's a bit like how uh, Shaun of the Dead, when that came out nearly 20 years ago, it was clearly this movie that these guys had had their eye on making for a very long time. I, again, I don't know how long the creative process was on it, but they knew that they were shooting their shot and they were gonna they were gonna make sure it was perfect, um, and they succeeded. Sean is Sean is to me an unassailably great movie, um, and then just a few short years later, they did it again with Hot Fuzz, but in what I'm assuming is a more compacted time frame like do it again but but bigger and faster um and so i love seeing things like that happen without 
it without and then with the you see the finished product and it's just as enjoyable as the first of the second one and it's just as enjoyable as the first one was and you don't have to make excuses for it where it's like well that was fun but obviously like they really spent more time cultivating and manicuring the first one and this one was done a little bit more at speed it's not like that with this one at all like these these honestly all feel like there there were they were they originated from these thumbed over paperbacks on his shelf <laughs> and he's just been dying to make them for you know for for 30 years and now he gets a chance to do it and he does it so to me it's just yeah they're just they if i had to summarize them that's it they are they are finding 40 bucks in a coat you haven't worn in a long time brilliant um, I, I agree. I think everything about these movies is, is special. Uh, one last thing that I just want to shout out is, um, I've talked a little bit about it throughout the thing, is these are Netflix movies. And Netflix movies and a lot of Netflix shows have a tendency to be very same. And I'm not just saying this because Netflix have their own coterie of actors, right? Like there's a reason Anna de Armas was in... Um, Knives Out and then she was also in The Grey Man and she's also in what's the, the one that was there Stoneheart or whatever it was called right like we get it Blonde they, and yeah yeah and all that stuff and these so they have they're like the almost like the old studio system from the the 30s and 40s though let's hope nowhere near as exploitative but hmm. they have their own coterie of actors who are showing up and stuff but a lot of those movies look the same and I like to think of it like I like to describe it as a flat look where nothing feels real and nothing feels like it's a vibrant. It's very hard to imagine things as places. And one of my own particular pet peeves is the uh, day as nighttime um, shooting, which results in blue. Because in, in digital filmmaking, it's very hard to get the depth of darks and lights properly. Um, and I find that in both Knives Out and um, Glass Onion, they really go for a nighttime looking like a nighttime. There are scenes where they're outside at nighttime and it's very hard to see what's going on. And yes, I get it that some people will say, well, you know, it's murky. I couldn't really figure out what's going on. But unlike something like, for example, um, let's say Alien uh, versus Predator Requiem, where yeah. it's impossible to see what's going on. In this, it adds to what's happening because they're shorter scenes and they're there for a moment and then you have to get your eyes to adjust to it. So I just want to call mm. out the cinematography as being brilliant. Uh, the editing choices are brilliant. The music is brilliant. Like genuinely, uh, for me, you were, you're talking four and a half, five stars if we have to give something a number. And I know people like to have the numbers on the end of things and, and in fairness, so do I. But yeah, I just want to say, call out that the, every, every performance is good. Both of the movies, in the class only in particular, I was blown away by at least three of the performers who two of them I didn't expect to be good and one of them is a new actress that I'd only really seen in mm-hmm. teen like YA mm-hmm. stuff and I, I, I thought all three of them performed to great stuff we've already talked about this website or in this particular episode so Alex now that we've talked about the movie uh, I'll give you a chance this is the last episode of the week why don't you run us through what your plugs are uh, sure absolutely uh, I feel like I've I've uh... I, I've sprinkled them out throughout the week, so let's let's do a roundup, shall we? Uh, if you like, uh, if you have ever paid close attention to the hats that uh, actors wear in movies, uh, I recommend uh, my Instagram, Hats from Movies, uh, where I uh, 
it's not just it, it's not just pictures of hats from movies. Sometimes they're <laughs> a little. Sometimes they're self-explanatory. But I do go into a little bit of detail, not quite blog post detail, because I can't stand typing that much with my thumbs. But you know, it's an opportunity to shout out uh, costume designers who can be a little undersung at times. Um, I've had some lovely interactions with costume designers who are uh, who are active on Instagram. Um, and it just, it's, it's a fascination of mine. First of all, I like hats in real life anyway, but it's, it's fitting a hat to a person's head so that it physically looks good on them, aesthetically looks appealing, but also speaks to the character correctly, mm. uh, is an incredibly difficult thing. It's especially noticeable, by the way, in Westerns, because cowboy hats are impossible to get right on so with someone's ears jaw shoulders the lot and then speak about their characters and if you want to watch to me like the greatest hat movie of all time by the way is tombstone um movie fantastic movie brilliant hats brilliant hair design like it's it's it all no two people have the same facial hair in that movie no two people have the same hat every and everyone's sartorial like appearance presentation uh tells you everything you can watch that movie on mute and get everything you need to know about the characters um so that was what kind of inspired that to begin with so that's instagram.com slash hats from movies if you like uh if you like mixes that other people have made i have made a mix every single month on spot uh for almost the last 10 years uh over on Spotify, which I then share out on my blog at steelapesessions.com. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, like I say, it's been nearly 10 years of it. I have just posted my 135th mix. Um, I stand to drop mix number 150 sometime in the year 2024. And it is at that point that I'm going to seriously ask myself <laughs> if it's worth continuing. Because uh, sometimes they are a delight and sometimes what the hell have I gotten myself into? Um, if you want to follow me on Blue Sky, the sort of, uh, alternative to Twitter, uh, I'm no longer on Twitter. I've migrated that, uh, part of my personality over to Blue Sky, where you can find me at atomicgiant.bluesky.social. Uh, and I am also, one thing that we haven't really discussed in my day job, I am a, uh, I'm an executive writer producer for, uh, Disney branded television. I do marketing content. I've been doing TV promos short form music videos for uh over a decade at disney now and you can find the um highlights of those including uh my highlight reel uh over at vimeo.com slash gradette that's vimeo.com vimeo.com slash g-r-a-d-e-t um and oh oh uh and if you like the way i discuss movies uh down to their minutiae i would encourage you to check out uh, my blog slash newsletter, fivegreatminutes.substack.com. I try for weekly, I usually hit monthly, and then sometimes life just gets in the way, and it is what it is, but what do you want for nothing? <laughs> and if you want to look up the show, we have our own Twitter. You can find us at Glass Onion Min, all one word. We've also got an Instagram at Benoit Blanc Minute, um, all one word. And if you have it, treads.net slash... Uh, is also at Benoit Blanc Minute, um, all one word. Um, 
if you are listening to us and you've been enjoying what we've been doing or you've been enjoying us talking about movies for one minute uh, at a time but we've managed to make them 43 and 44 minute episodes you can rate us, rate us and review us would be fantastic five star reviews would be preferred and I will try my best to get Darren to read out some of the five star reviews in the future um, Try please subscribe and if you are going to rate us you can rate us straight into your podcatcher it will be aggregated for us now because this is the Friday episode I am supposed to give plugs for myself. I am no longer really a podcaster, even though what I'm about to say is going to make it sound like I still am. I guest on a podcast called Judging Book Covers. I am only a guest, despite the fact that I am on every episode so far, but I am only a guest on that podcast. It is a monthly um, uh, book club podcast where we take a book, we read it, and then we discuss it at length. And my two co-hosts, Megan and Stephanie, we've been friends for years. We met them through podcasting, or I met them through podcasting. Uh, basically, it's just an excuse for us to hang out and have a chat. Uh, they try their best to force me to read books that I wouldn't usually read. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a fantasy reader. I like you know everything from Lord of the Rings to I suppose I'd have to admit that I kind of like Brandon Sanderson stuff, although I I do think he's overrated. But they are currently for- forcing me to read a lot of romanticy, which is a uh, romance, uh, but in a fantasy setting. So I think on next month's episode, we will be discussing Fort Wing by Rebecca uh, Yaros. Um, I haven't read it yet. I I'm looking at it here on the table beside me, and I'm not sure. If, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm feeling it, but I'll give it a go, and you can listen to me discuss this. The second podcast that I guest on semi regularly is Media Evil. Um, the main host of the show. It was a, a podcast that I co-hosted back at the beginning. I, I helped find the podcast. Um, but it's my very good friend, Sarah F. Decker. Again, I met her through podcasting. I actually met her in the same group of, on Facebook where I met Alex for the first time. Um, a, a group that it's for fans of a podcast called The Flophouse. And myself and Sarah became friends. And she is a medieval historian. And in that podcast she looks at movies tv shows and reads books that are set in the medieval period and then she discusses what they get right what they get wrong and then what people have misconceptions about the medieval period based on the media that we see so for example if you watch most medieval settings it's it's really hard life for a peasant um and yes it was but sarah will educate you and let you know that it's not quite as bad um, if you watch something like, for example, The Last Jewel, you might feel that women have no agency in the medieval set pitting, although that is technically um, just beyond the medieval setting. But you might feel they have no agency and Sarah will set you correct when you listen to the episode. Hmm. And anytime I'm on an episode, basically, I'm not there because I am not an expert in anything medieval history. Hmm. But I do like it when people get stabbed in the face. And uh, yeah, that happens a lot in medieval movies. So, whoa. Uh, hmm. And then... Uh, I also have done a guest spot on uh, an actual play Dungeons and Dragons style podcast. I think they use Monster of the Week was the um, the game engine that we used. And I played Jimmy Rigney, who is a Boston cop. And if you ever wanted to hear what it sounds like when I try to do a Boston accent as an Irish uh, immigrant who is a cop who is trying to deal with the supernatural. Well, it sounds pretty much like this because I tried it for about 20 seconds and then realized nobody ever <laughs> needs to listen to me saying Harvard um, but that was that, I'm not even joking that's what it would have sounded like uh, um, and then um, because I was just messing around while I was deciding to play that character 
I spent a lot of the time just singing songs from Cats in the background. And I apologize to the person <laughs> who had to edit that because I was, one, I'm not a particularly good singer. And two, I was at it incessantly. And then I moved on to um, Love Never Dies, the sequel to uh, the, um, the Phantom of the Opera. But like, again, that's the kind of thing you want to watch. The last thing I'm going to plug is I did a guest spot on an episode called Jala, Tla- Jala Chan's Place recently. Jala is uh, a fitness expert. She's from Houston uh, in Texas. She's an amazing woman. Um, she's been, she had a, a long-term sickness and she, she wanted to set up a podcast and just discuss things that she likes. And she found people that she, like-minded people from the internet and she sometimes just get them to come on and guest. I guessed it recently where she had me watch anime. Now, I am not an anime guy and uh, I watched two animes that both of them made me cry. So hmm. one of them is called Voices of a Distant Star and the other one is called Her and Her Cat. You can find Her and Her Cat on YouTube. It's like three minutes long. But if you watch that and don't feel touched by what's happening in that little anime, I don't know what's going on in your soul and I feel sorry for you. But yeah, so you can find me in all of those places. But even though that's four... <laughs> four things i've just plugged i really don't do podcasting anymore and i don't have a podcast that i like to think of myself alex this is the first time we got to speak this week uh, i've known you for five or six years through mm-hmm. internet related stuff i just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure and anytime you want to have a podcast or you're stuck and you need somebody i'm always available uh, give me a shout and i will fill in yeah man it'd be my pleasure this has been an absolute delight i mean look it it helps uh, when we get to uh, meet on subject matter, we both feel so warmly toward, but then also diverge onto things that we also feel strongly about, like Star Trek, Bond, whatever. And it all sort of comes back, you know, it all, the the the, the Benoit Blancs, I think, are becoming one of those venerated uh, subgenres, uh, properties for me very quickly uh, up there. So it's always nice to find... Um, uh, God, do we have like a, f- a name for the fandom? Is there one? Are we? Um, <laughs> well, are we dis- are say, we disruptors? Are we shitheads? What are we? I was gonna say we call ourselves blankies, but that's from blank tech podcast. But what about we call ourselves blankies? <laughs> we say very very fancy. We're blankies. You know what? Uh, come back to me. We'll we'll, we'll 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 get to the bottom of this. We'll we'll workshop it. Well, Alex, we'll genuinely, workshop. it's been a pleasure, and I just want to say thank you to Darren, who does all of the editing and all of the producing for these shows. He is Thanks, one Darren. of the hardest working men in podcasting. So, absolutely delightful, and thank you very much for asking me to guess. Um, anybody listening, it's been my pleasure, and I hope that you hear me again sometime. So, bye. Are you warm? Are you real? Mona Lisa are just a cold and lonely lovely work of art Mona Lisa Oh, no.